Hello and welcome to The World Ahead on Economist Radio. I'm Tom Standage, Deputy Editor at The Economist. In this future-gazing podcast series, we consider provocative prophecies and speculative scenarios to gain a different perspective on the present and help us better prepare for what might come next. This month, we're considering the future of travel. Starting with a scenario drawn from our annual supplement, The World If, which was published in The Economist in July. That scenario asks, what if aviation doesn't recover from COVID-19? This is not totally unexpected. I think everyone in this industry should have expected some sort of, of an event happening and affecting the industry from a negative perspective. It's just been uh, too good to be true for a long time. And in the longer term, what can be done to make flying greener? Electric aircraft do look, certainly for small, short flights, a way to go. And how is the combination of the pandemic and growing concern about climate change affecting attitudes towards travel? What we're seeing right now is the most profound shift in how we consume this thing called travel. In July, The Economist published its World If supplement, a set of scenarios that consider how the fight against climate change might unfold over the coming years and decades. One of those scenarios is set in May 2022. It describes a world in which the aviation industry is still struggling two years after the start of the pandemic. When I was writing this piece, the International Air Transport Association had predicted that air travel wouldn't return to 2019 levels until 2023. Charles Reed, The Economist's resident expert on transport technologies, is the author of the scenario. I was quite critical of that and argued that it would take much longer than that. In fact, IATA has predicted that it will take until at least 2024, if not longer, until pre-pandemic levels of air travel are reached. And then there are some leading figures in the industry who are regarded as relatively bullish, who say that we might have reached the highest ever levels of cross-border travel. Now, if we have indeed reached peak plane and peak cross-border travel and and that sort of thing, that would be very different from previous crises that have hit the aviation industry because it's previously bounced back very quickly, hasn't it? Exactly. So there have been lots of downturns in the aviation industry since the Second World War, the most recent ones being after the September 11th attacks and after the global financial crisis. But they've always bounced back relatively quickly, within two years or so. But a lot of people argue this time is very different. One organisation with a keen interest in understanding just how deep the downturn will be and how long it will go on for is IATA, the International Air Transport Association. Airlines will probably end up losing almost $100 billion in 2020. Brian Pierce is the chief economist at IATA. This time it is different. We are seeing a much um, slower recovery globally, although in some domestic markets we have seen a more rapid recovery. For instance, in the Vietnamese domestic market, we actually saw a recovery and indeed traffic levels domestically were exceeding pre-crisis levels in the summer. But unfortunately, they've been hit by a resurgence of coronavirus and the market has slumped once more. And I think that's perhaps the key difference, that the shock 
is being sustained with the second waves and the resurgences of the coronavirus. But I do see you know, the growth of, of international travel, particularly long haul travel, being very slow. This summer, the establishment of travel bubbles and air corridors, where countries agree to allow each other's citizens to cross borders without restrictions, has been one attempt to get people moving again. But in his scenario, Charles Reed predicted that they would collapse. And he was right. Well, let's start off with the air travel corridors and their bridges. And uh, there was lots of excitement about this could be the way that the world reopens the travel industry. And it's quite interesting that many of these collapsed even before they were really set up. When I was writing this piece, there was great excitement about the Trans-Tasman Corridor between New Zealand and Australia. And that collapsed almost immediately. There's been a surge of cases in the state of Victoria in Australia. The Australian government has limited the number of its citizens allowed in and out the country to just 4,000 a week. Essentially, Australia is now closed off to the rest of the world, including New Zealand. And you also predicted a wave of bailouts and bankruptcies. Well, there has been a lot of government money splashed around to bail out these airlines. In America, um, at least $25 billion have been spent bailing out that country's biggest airlines. In Europe, a lot of state aid regulations have been circumvented in order to keep a lot of airlines flying. There have been fewer bankruptcies, you know, fewer airlines have completely disappeared than the scenario represented. But there have been a lot of bankruptcy filings in that alone recently there's been Aeromexico, LATAM, Virgin Australia, Virgin Atlantic go bankrupt. These are all pretty important airlines in their regions before this crisis. But the point is, is that people think that all four of those airlines will survive in some form. And it's been interesting to see how much life support investors, banks, creditors, governments are willing to throw at these airlines. If government support is taken away, then a lot of airlines are going to be in serious trouble. IATA reckons that only 30 of the world's 700 airlines would survive the crisis without government help. But for stronger airlines, this is an opportunity to take market share from weaker rivals. I think crisis situations create the opportunity for uh, low-cost carriers to step change their presence in the industry. One company that's turned the pandemic to its advantage is Wizz Air, a low-cost airline based in Hungary. It was established in 2003, and in recent years it's been one of Europe's fastest-growing airlines. Josef Faraday is Wizz Air's founder and chief executive. So what we are doing is, on the one hand, we are managing the current situation by reducing capacity on our existing markets and reallocating that capacity to new markets. Spreading and expanding our geographical footprint is the way to deal with this crisis. So what is it about your financial position and your business model that allows you to take this crisis as an opportunity? You know, we have been always managing this business for cash, not only for profit. And I think it is very important because that makes the business resilient. And uh, we know in the airline industry that this is a cyclical business. 
And uh, when you are up, you really enjoy the good times. And many airlines uh, are quite profitable. But when uh, the, the cycle is down, uh, airlines tend to be usually affected. But a crisis, you know, creates the opportunity for restructuring the business and build your positions and come out uh, as a winner. I could almost argue that, uh, you know, the last economic crisis hit the industry back in 2008, 2009. But at that time, Visair was too small to take real advantage of the situation. Were you looking at the way that low-cost airlines in Europe expanded after 9-11. Is that the sort of opportunity you were waiting for? If you look back uh, to the events of 9-11, the uh, 2008-2009 economic crisis and now COVID-19, I mean, these are really the momentums for uh, restructuring the industry. I think we are fairly sizable now and we are solid and uh, and strong from a financial standpoint to take advantage of the events. I mean, obviously, it is very unfortunate, but at the same time, this is not totally unexpected. I think everyone in this industry should have expected some sort of, of an event happening and affecting the industry from a negative perspective. It's just been uh, too good to be true for a long time. The pandemic may pose the biggest threat to aviation right now, but reducing the industry's climate-changing greenhouse gas emissions in the years to come will be an even bigger challenge. So could the aviation industry find itself on the wrong side of shifting social attitudes? Could flying come to be seen as the new smoking? Here's Brian Pierce again. I think climate change is a really serious issue for the industry. You know, flying itself going from one place to another to do business or to visit friends and family or to transport medical equipment or supply an assembly plant is not a bad thing. It's the fossil-based fuels that are used to do that that's the bad thing. And the industry has been investing a lot in the development of sustainable uh, aviation fuels. I'm pleased that we've seen a number of government measures in the stimulus packages which actually support the development of capacity to produce low-carbon aviation fuels. Secondly, there's, there's an offsetting scheme that is being introduced um, for international aviation from, from this year. Um, the industry has worked for, I guess, a decade um, in order to put, put this in, in place. So at least the growth of the, of the industry will be offset until we reach that point where there are sufficient quantities of affordable, sustainable fuels uh, to decouple the good part of, of air transport. You know, it is an essential service for the modern economy from the damage that's being done from the carbon emissions from its fossil fuels. But those outside the aviation industry see things a little differently. What we're seeing right now is the most profound shift in how we consume this thing called travel. Sophie Roberts is a travel writer and the author of The Lost Pianos of Siberia. It's happening at exactly the same time as, as we were already questioning the, the ethics and the complexities of climate change. So it's like a perfect storm. And when I see examples of those who are sort of trying to jump straight back onto the bandwagon and get these businesses moving, what we've got is a return to a much more authentic kind of travel, I think. It's not just a social media brag anymore, because it's kind of ugly. 
So all of these bigger questions are being put to the test at the moment. It's interesting. Well, let's dig into that a little bit, because even before the pandemic, we had this phenomenon, and I don't know how widespread it was, of flight shaming. And Greta Thunberg and other environmental campaigners were trying to make flying much less socially acceptable. Do you think that's more likely to become widespread now? Is that when you say it's more than a social media brag and it's becoming uglier, are people starting to become embarrassed of travelling if they can travel now? Yeah, I think just as we saw in lockdown, there was a real push against the sort of lifestyle generation, if you want to call it, who were posting images about a perfect life. Oh, so this is the the COVID killed the influencer hypothesis. Yes, yes, exactly. And so the kind of dominant narrative in travel has been the dreamscape, the paradise paradigm. You know, it's always has been. It's why it's the most common word used in travel marketing. Paradise has now got a snake sitting right on the edge of that garden that we are all aware could bite. And what I'm interested in is how that is happening and has happened at the same time as the Greta flight shaming scenario because now we're getting lifestyle shaming as well. So you have the flight issue and then you have people posting images of them um, standing on the edge of an infinity pool in the south of France and it's like, whoa, something just happened. Is this really an appropriate narrative to be putting out there? Is it a sensitive narrative? What is going on in this industry? The pandemic has forced people to reconsider what it means to travel, both for leisure and for business. Now that video conferencing has become so widely accepted, do you really need to get on that plane? And if you do, you might get called out for it. Travel risks spreading the disease and it contributes to climate change. In the longer term, the amount of people who flight chain people will probably increase because we now live in a world where it has been shown that we can live without foreign holidays, we can survive without travelling for business using Zoom and other video conferencing products. There's ways that you can innovate as a company to create networks without having to take a first-class flight halfway across the world. And furthermore, companies keep records of how much carbon emissions they're making. They keep an eye on how much money they're spending. And by cutting things such as unnecessary business travel, you actually hit two birds with one stone. You save the company money, but you also reduce the carbon footprint of that company. And as regulations um, designed to curb climate change, curb greenhouse gas emissions, increasingly bite, companies will become increasingly interested in reducing their carbon footprint. So is there a way to enjoy the benefits of aviation without the environmental drawbacks? The key will be finding technologies to make planes greener. Small electric aircraft are already flying. They are in sort of prototype and demonstration form at the moment. Paul Markilly is The Economist's innovations editor. For sort of two, three, four, five, maybe more passengers, these look ideal on short flights, on air taxi routes or into island hops. Okay, so you could build a sort of Cessna-style electric plane for a few people. Can you build an electric jumbo, though? No, you can't build an electric jumbo, but you could build something bigger than a Cessna. A Cessna caravan can carry sort of eight or nine people, so it's a you know it's a moderately small airliner, and batteries will get better. But to get bigger electric aircraft, you need to move into a hybrid form, and there's several ways you can do that. You can use the jet engine as a generator to top up the battery while you're flying, 
or you could use the electric fans and a jet engine running at the same time for takeoff and then shut down or throttle back the jet engine during cruise. Another alternative is to fly electric but using a fuel cell and having that fuel cell powered by hydrogen which could be stored on board and hydrogen has got a massive energy density much better even than jet fuel. Okay so the real limiting factor here is the energy density. Obviously the amount of energy packed into jet fuel is very large. The amount of energy you can pack into a a battery of the same weight is is much smaller and also that battery will, will take up a lot of space. So hydrogen sort of lets you have both. It lets you have the energy density of a fuel but also use it for electricity rather than producing carbon emissions. Yeah, the basic problem you're looking at, kilo for kilo, aviation fuel contains a hundred times or so more energy than a lithium-ion battery. And that makes it look impossible for electric aeroplanes to take off. But there are other factors involved. I mean, a jet engine is not very efficient at turning that energy in the fuel into work. A lot of it's just lost as heat. I mean, even at best, a jet engine is probably only 55% efficient, and that's at cruise, and much less at takeoff. Now, an electric Electric motor is 95% efficient or better. And there are other advantages as well because electric motors are simpler, they don't break down, you've got lower operating costs, lower maintenance costs. So all these other factors actually start to weigh in there. And that begins to make electric aircraft more competitive. And that's before we get the better batteries. Okay, so we're going to have possibly hybrids as the way to go, as we've seen with cars, and that could pave the way to to pure electrics, maybe fueled by hydrogen. And uh, what about the idea of things like biofuels and synthetic fuels? I know that airlines have been testing those, certainly, in existing aircraft, haven't they? Well, these can help bring the carbon emission levels down for airlines and for aircraft. And... uh, help their green credentials but they don't go as far as you can with electricity i mean they certainly help there are benefits there but there are some of them are quite controversial because if you're producing this stuff on land that could otherwise be used for growing food then some people may not see that as being very beneficial and then the other factor that people talk about is negative emission technology which sucks emissions out of the air could you not just burn jet fuel in the usual way in existing aircraft and if you've got this technology that can suck the co2 out of the air you could use that to sort of fix the problem afterwards do you think that might be a runner well you can do all these sort of things but at the end of the day you come back to the simple fact that it's much easier to knock the emissions on the head in the first place and that's why electric aircraft do look certainly for small short flights a way to go and as in a hybrid form for the future so the pandemic is in some ways a great curse but in other ways it's a great blessing Charles Reed believes that the economic damage caused by the pandemic could actually accelerate the development of greener planes by encouraging plane makers to skip a generation. Even with relatively quick bounce back, there are still going to be too many planes in the world. So Boeing and Airbus have slashed production of aircraft and they've also cancelled plans to produce several new aircrafts in the 2020s and will instead focus their efforts on creating a new generation of aircraft which will be hybrid or electric powered in the 2030s. And that's because they won't be worried about paying off the debts accrued in the 2030s from designing this stopgap generation of planes because there's just no demand for those planes in the next few years. And instead their efforts will go into that new generation in the 2030s. 
But before we arrive in that high-tech future, Sophie Roberts reckons the pandemic could turn back the clock and encourage a reconnection with older travel traditions. All my reading for the last six weeks has been the travel writing in the 1930s, a really restless period. People trying to find their place in not just the consumption of a holiday, and in at those times there's wonderful narratives of travelling through Europe on a train, but also finding their place in the tectonics of political shifts, which we're seeing at the moment. Between the wars and now, something was happening in and how we were navigating travel, restlessness and our desire to satisfy something that lies over the other side of the horizon we're not quite sure about. I still think it'll be a familiar looking business. Those in the industry seem optimistic that demand for aviation will bounce back as it has done before. And I think that the demands for travel and, and for air cargo will return. This is going to be a, a long lasting shock, but I'm not so convinced that we're going to see particularly radical change. I think mobility remains a key issue for people in the future, but flying beyond five, six hours, I think will prevail as a desired concept for travelers. I don't think this is going to be uh, changing uh, fundamentally. And I think uh, demand will continue to rise for flying, but the structural challenge the industry needs to address, we need to look at technology, we need to look at airline operating models to become more effective on the one hand and less impactful on the environment. But if we do take to the air again, Charles Reed says we should expect big changes ahead. So I think flying will change more in the next 15 years than it has in the previous 60 or 70 years. Since Boeing designed the 707 and 737 with engines which burn fossil fuels, with engines which hang off wings of aircraft which are just thin long tubes, a lot of these things will change over the next 15 years. You'll see more hybrid planes, more electric planes. You might see planes which aren't very long thin tubes and that it's far more energy efficient to sit in planes which are basically big wings that carry passengers or freight in. You might even have seats which face backwards and that it's far safer in a aircraft crash to be facing backwards. So I think that flying will look very, very different, very, very different indeed. That's all for this edition of The World Ahead. You can listen to and read more of our journalism by subscribing to The Economist. Go to economist.com slash podcast offer for the best introductory offer. And that link is in the show notes. I'm Tom Standage in London. This is The Economist.